frank here. Frank Menelicino, let me be frank. I haven't been around in about six months. I originally started this podcast because I wanted to make some episodes on topics that I really cared about. Film, music, sports, etc. And in December, I cranked out three episodes right off the bat in three weeks. And I wanted to, my plan was for 2017 to do an episode per month. But I was fortunate enough to receive some roles on stage and some short film work and I got caught up with my job as an actor which is a good thing because that's my one love in life and I like to focus on a role wholeheartedly 150% when I get one so I didn't have any time for recreational activities like my podcast here but now I've got some downtime in between jobs tours so there's several subjects I want to talk about but I'm gonna start with an event that turns 25 this summer. Let's talk about Nirvana's 1992 performance at the Reading Festival because this is widely considered to be Nirvana's crowning achievement as a band in terms of live concerts. Now, of course, Nirvana's career was entirely too short. Seven-year career from 1987 to 1994, the death of Kurt Cobain. So they weren't really around that long once they got famous, super famous. And around this time, in August of 1992, you're talking about arguably the biggest band in the world because a little under a year before, in September of 1991, they released their major label debut, which of course was Nevermind, the album that changed the landscape of pop culture and music forever. And that was extremely popular behind the strength of Smells Like Teen Spirit, which went on to be one of the biggest anthems of the 90s, if not the biggest anthem, one of the most praised songs of all time. And when Nevermind was released in September, it didn't pick up steam until towards the end of the year because in October, the music video to Smells Like Teen Spirit, which was just as iconic as the song itself, you know, the yellow-tinted filter that they're using, the pep rally from hell, and MTV had it in its buzz bin, and then it just took over the whole, the whole station. I mean, it, it smells like Teen Spirit was everywhere. And then it took over the radio after it started out on just college town radios, and it captivated the entire nation, and then eventually the world. But towards the end of the year, Nirvana, their Nevermind album, kept selling more and more and more due to word of mouth and popularity increase. And then in January of 1992, Nevermind dethroned Michael Jackson, the king of pop, on top of the Billboard chart. And all of a sudden, the entire world was talking about and were focused on Nirvana and the city of Seattle itself and the countless other bands that were there and who were all coming up into the limelight themselves. And around this time, Nirvana was doing, in January of 92, their SNL appearance, their infamous SNL appearance. And 1992 was the year, really, where Kurt Cobain's life would start to spiral out of control, eventually culminating in his, his death, his suicide in 1994. Now, the thing is, when they performed at Reading, he was still at the peak of his powers as a performer, even though his personal life was crumbling. Although, this is also when his baby was born, Francis Bean, so you can't really say that that was a negative in his life, but all the other problems in his life, the, the drug problems, the stress of being extremely famous... A tumultuous relationship with his wife, Courtney Love. All that was adding up. But anyways, 1992, August 30th, 1992, the Reading Festival. Nirvana headlines. 
And it's interesting because they were at Reading the year before, in the summer of 1991, before they broke big with Nevermind. They were like midway down on the card, so they performed in like the afternoon during the weekend. And now they were the big time headliners. And Kurt Cobain, in the press at the time, was being damned for his, his mental health state. This is around the time when all the articles started to come out that he was struggling with heroin mightily and he was losing his mind and that he was just in terrible, awful shape and nobody knew how he was going to perform on tour and how they were going to get anything done as a band. So Cobain comes out on stage in a wheelchair. He's being wheeled by Everett True, which is the journalist. His real name slips me at this point. I can't remember it. He was the journalist that helped break Seattle to the world, their music scene. So he wheels Cobain out in a wheelchair, and Cobain's got this wig on and this doctor's gown, and he gets up to the mic. He's pretending that he's struggling, and he stands up, and he gets into the microphone, and he says, some say love hurts, and then he just collapses onto the stage. He's on his back, not moving a muscle for about 15 seconds, and then he gets up, you know, jokes over. He goes and grabs his guitar, and they just fucking tear into Breed. A short but just straight killer track. It's just unbelievable. I mean, they were, like I said, they were at the peak of their powers, and this band was just so tight. I mean, just an excellent band. You had Chris Novoselic on bass, the six foot six, six foot seven giant, man. That guy was huge, especially compared to the five foot eight Cobain. So then you had Dave Grohl in the back on drums, of course, before he was Dave Grohl, frontman of the Foo Fighters. He was Dave Grohl, the drummer for Nirvana, but not just another drummer. A lot of people forget how incredible Dave Grohl was on drums for Nirvana. Because, I mean, he was their fifth and final drummer. They had been through four up until him, and they could never find the right drummer that rounded out their sound until they found Grohl. I mean, that guy was a force on the drum kit, man. I mean, he was to Seattle what John Bonham and Keith Moon were to classic rock before. I mean, seriously, I mean, this guy hit those drums like he was a fucking silverback gorilla. He just assaulted the shit out of them, man. And he was such a crucial addition to that band. So Nirvana opens up with Breed, and then they go right into Drain You. And Drain You was actually one of the favorite songs of frontman Kurt Cobain. He loved performing Drain You. He actually said in an interview once that, he could play that song over and over and over again, and he would never, ever get sick of it. And he was talking about this in comparison to Smells Like Teen Spirit because the person who was interviewing him brought Teen Spirit up, of course, and Cobain was notorious for hating that song for how big it became and how famous it made the band and how everybody, a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people just looked at Nirvana as Smells Like Teen Spirit and nothing else. They knew nothing past that song, even though they were a band three years before that, four years before that, and they were a band after that. Everybody just focuses on Smells Like Teen Spirit, or the majority of the people were just focusing on that because that was the radio hit, and it was played into the ground. So Gobain fucking hated playing that at concerts. He couldn't stand it. He would often switch up the lyrics, and he wouldn't put any effort into it when he performed it just to piss people off because he knew that's what they wanted to hear. But Drain You was one of his favorite songs, a song that deals with a lot of uh, medical imagery, like many. Cobain penned songs in the Nirvana catalog. Then they go into Aneurysm. And Aneurysm is an interesting song. It's off of Incesticides, which was an album that was mostly B-sides and radio demo sessions that were unreleased by Nirvana. And it was put out in 1992 in between Nevermind and In Utero, the band's third and final studio album, because 
Geffen Records wanted to capitalize on their massive fame in 1992 by putting this out, although there was no big press release behind it, like a major album release, like a major record. So it was just put out there for people to consume with not much of a marketing plan behind it, but it was still relatively successful, and it got Nirvana tracks out there again to keep them in the public consciousness. And Aneurysm is one of those songs that's on there. And Aneurysm is very Beatles-esque. And if you know anything about Nirvana and Kurt Cobain, you know that the Beatles were his biggest influence. He was obsessed with the Beatles. And I once read an article that said Nirvana is the Beatles on Thorazine. And Aneurysm is a very Beatles-like song. As a matter of fact, this song in particular, the vocal style that Cobain uses, that like that screech scream, is extremely similar to John Lennon's vocal approach and style in the song Twist and Shout, which, of course, is one of their most known songs, one of the Beatles' most known songs, made even more famous when Ferris Bueller's Day Off used it in the iconic parade scene. And Aneurysm is similar to it. If you listen to Twist and Shout by John Lennon, you know, Twist and Shout, if you actually listen to Aneurysm, the lyrics in that song at the beginning is Cobain screeching and screaming and wailing, Come on over, do the twist. And you could just you could just hear in his voice and his approach to his musical instruments and his lyrics how influenced by the Beatles he was. And Aneurysm is one of those songs. Well, shake it up, baby, now. Shake it up, baby. Twist and shout. Twist and shout. Come on, come on, come on, come on, baby. Nirvana cuts into School, which is one of their tracks off of Bleach. And Bleach was Nirvana's first album ever from 1989, recorded for a little over $600. And School, School's an awesome, just straight punk rock jam. And that's the thing about Nirvana that people don't really acknowledge or realize this day and age, that Nirvana, at their core, they were a punk rock band. I mean, Cobain... Punk rock was his saving grace when he was growing up in the 80s, and he was hugely inspired by the punk rock movement of the 70s, the late 70s, in addition to bands before that and the Beatles, like I mentioned. And that whole album, Bleach, is just a punk rock assault. And Cobain would later say that, you know, he eventually grew to dislike Nevermind because it wasn't like the band's roots, it wasn't punk enough like he originally wanted it to be or how the band originally started and he felt like they were losing the direction sometimes and that's why In Utero is much harder and much rougher their third studio album their final studio album and then they cut into Sliver which of course another incesticide song and Sliver this is a song about a grandchild being left at his grandparents house while his parents go out and it's another one of those songs, you know, the classic quiet, loud dynamic that Nirvana was famous for. The music video, of course, featured Cobain's newborn daughter, Frances Bean. They had her dancing around in it. And Sliver, Sliver's, a, Sliver's an awesome song, too. It's a great song. Before they start Sliver, they start joking about, oh, this is our last concert ever. You know, should we go back into record a record? And they're just joking with each other and screwing around with classic 
Cobain and Nova Selich up there. Dave Grohl performs backing vocals on Sliver, like he does several songs in the Nirvana catalog. And then they cut into In Bloom, which is one of the singles off of Nevermind. Now, it's just interesting about the performance of In Bloom. Cobain's voice at this point, it just seemed like it was so shot. I mean, Cobain... In one interview, he even says, because he never actually truly, like, sang. Like, there's a couple of songs in Nirvana's record history, like Polly and, like, All Apologies, where he would sing, or, like, Something in the Way, where he would genuinely sing them. And he had, like, a solid voice, a nice voice. But other than that, the guy would just always scream into the microphone. He even said in an MTV interview once, oh, yeah, my talent is basically just screaming into a microphone. That's all I do. And that's part of the reason why I think their career was so short what maybe led him to some of the drug abuse that he was going through because, I mean, when you do what he did night after night after night on tours and in the studio, I mean, that's eventually going to destroy your vocal cords and your voice, and you can hear it as their career went on and things got worse due to that and, of course, the drugs. On their final tour before before he died, when they were in Europe, they had to cancel the tours because of his declining health, and he went to a doctor, and the doctor said, you got bad laryngitis. You need to actually learn how to sing. Otherwise, you're never going to be able to carry on a career like this. Gomez just looked at him and said, yeah, that's not going to happen. And obviously didn't do anything about it, didn't want to do anything about it. And In Bloom is one of the songs here where you can just listen to his voice, the way he's talking, and it just seems like there's a frog caught in his throat. And it's one of those songs where he starts screaming, and it's like you start to feel your own vocal chords collapse on themselves it's just like sometimes you're in pain by just listening to him sing and then they go into come as you are which is another one of the nirvana hits and of course there's a controversy of come as you are way back when that they lifted the riff from killing joke the song the 80s which also might have been on a song called life goes on by the damned so there was a lot of you know problems with that and originally cobain didn't even want to release come as you are because he thought that those bands would make a big deal about it, but the studio decided to anyways because it was too much of a opportunity for a big single on the radio again. The follow-up smells like Teen Spirit, so they did. And they did have problems with the Killing Joke band, but nothing ever came out of it except a botched lawsuit and a settlement out of court, I believe. Yeah, Come As You Are. Great song, though, regardless. And then they go into Lithium. And Lithium, one of the most popular Nirvana songs, Lithium is interesting because Lithium is that song when you go to a bar and if you hear a Nirvana tune, they usually put on Lithium. Another article I read said Lithium was the one song in Nirvana's catalog where everybody at the concert, everybody didn't mosh. They they literally danced. They danced like they were at a school dance to fucking Lithium. And then they go into About a Girl, which is another song that's very Beatles-esque, written about one of Cobain's ex-girlfriends. Very good tune. Very Paul McCartney and John Lennon-like. Then they go into Tourette's, which would be on In Utero, and it's basically just a little two-minute cut that's <laughs> Cobain shrieking at the top of his lungs. Then they do Polly, which is off Nevermind. And then they go into Lounge Act. Now, Lounge Act is one of my favorite Nirvana songs. It's off of Nevermind, and they rarely ever played it live. This is one of the only times that they ever did put it into their set list, and the reason being is it was about one of Cobain's ex-girlfriends, Toby Vale. And Courtney Love allegedly knew that and hated 
that song because of its connection to her, and she would never allow him to play it live. Allegedly, he did it at Reading just to piss her off. He put it on the set list, and it's a great song. Now, Lounge Act is one of those tunes, to me, that would influence all the bands that would come up after Nirvana throughout the 90s, like the Green Days and the, the Sublimes and the Blink-182s. It's like a classic, poppy, punk rock radio song. And then after Lounge Act comes Smells Like Teen Spirit, the mega hit, right? The supernova song that made Nirvana the focus of the world. A song that Cobain just couldn't fucking stand after a while. And before they play Smells Like Teen Spirit, Cobain actually starts playing the opening, starts playing the chorus to More Than a Feeling because there's this extreme similarities between the opening riff of Smells Like Teen Spirit and the riff in the chorus of More Than a Feeling. So again, Cobain just, you know, sticking it to all the people out there by playing More Than a Feeling before he gets into Smells Like Teen Spirit. And then he even intentionally starts fucking up the chords as he's playing the song because, as I said earlier... He often liked to fuck with that song because he knew it's what so many people. That's the only song they wanted to hear. That's the only reason they were at his concerts. And he would purposely fuck it up a lot of the time just because he knew that. So they finish Teen Spirit. They go to On a Plane. Another Nevermind hit. They go to Negative Creep, which is off of Bleach. Another straight-up fucking punk song. I mean, you want to hear Nirvana for what they truly were. You need to go on Bleach. You need to go wherever you need to go to find Bleach. You need to find Bleach, you need to throw it on, you need to listen to it, because that is the roots of Nirvana and the heart of Nirvana, Bleach. And they go in the bin of sun, and they go to All Apologies, which of course would be one of their more notable songs as well. They performed it at Unplugged, and this was the first time they performed it, I'm pretty sure, at the Reading Festival, because Cobain introduces it, and he says it's dedicated to his recently born daughter, Francis, and his wife, Courtney Love. And before he plays it, he talks about how the entire world has this bad image of his wife and so many people are saying bad things about her and she thinks everybody hates her so he's like i need you to do me a favor out there in the audience on the count of three everybody say i love court or we love you courtney so he counts and they all the entire audience the, however many hundreds of thousands of people are there just say we love you courtney and then he cuts into all apologies and what i find interesting is it was still unfinished because the final version of all apologies is what else you know can i say what else should i say everyone is gay but on stage that night, he said, all my words are gray, as opposed to everyone is gay. And that's one of the things about Cobain, because he cared about music. Music first, lyrics second, is what Dave Grohl said Cobain always preached. It's about crafting the music for the song, and then we'll worry about the lyrics. Cobain was infamous for just scrawling any lyrics that came to his mind down right before they would record songs. And that's why the cult of Kurt Cobain. So many people worship the guy, and they say, and obviously I love Nirvana, and I love Cobain, but there are some people who say, oh, he was just such a genius lyricist, and I don't think that's true. Not that he wasn't a good lyricist, but his genius was in the fact that he could craft musical melodies with his instrument like none other, like no other at his time. I mean, that guy was able to put sounds together with his guitar and Nova Selich's bass and Rolls drums and just... Create shit that would be stuck in your head for hours and hours and days. It would be stuck in your head. I mean, after all, Smells Like Teen Spirit is catchy as shit for its simple-ass chorus. I mean, quiet, loud, quiet, loud, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Let's, let's be blunt here. There's nothing genius about hello, 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 and fucking a mulatto, a mosquito, my libido. I mean... 
what is genius about the craftsmanship of that song is not just the passion that Cobain has in performing it and the raw emotion, the catharsis that he connects with you, but it's the goddamn construction of the song from a musical standpoint. I mean, the simplistic song structure and the guitar work, the simple guitar work. I mean, the guitar solo in that song is just the vocal melody played on the guitar. It's unbelievable. It's so simple, but it's so powerful. And that was Cobain's genius, his structure of songs and his musical melodies. So all apologies. After that, they go into Blue, which is another Bleach song. And then they go into their encore, which starts with Dumb. And Dumb is one of the songs they played at Unplugged. It's off in utero. Another Beatles-esque song. Very John Lennon-like. And they go into Stay Away, Spank Through. They do Love Buzz, which is one of the covers that they did when they first started as a band in 1987. That was the first single they released off of their Bleach album, as a matter of fact. And they do another cover. A fang cover, the money will roll right in. They do D7, which is a wipers cover, and they finish, they close with territorial pissings. And the best part about this concert, to me, if you watch it, after the credits roll, it shows Kurt Cobain walking down a ramp. I'm assuming he's going to his trailer, he's just going back to whatever hotel he's staying at. And his dad tracks him down. It's like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. My son has been waiting all year to see you. He's such a huge fan. Could you please give me an autograph? And Cobain says, well, did he make it out tonight? And he's like, yeah, he's right over here, the dad says. And the dad brings him over, and it's this little kid, this little, like, eight- or nine-year-old. And he goes up to Kurt Cobain with the biggest smile on his face. And Cobain greets him and says, hey, man, you know, how are you? And the kid says, oh, I've been waiting so long to see you. I can't wait to tell my friends about this. You're my hero. And Cobain just gives, like, this little chuckle, like, ah. And it's one of those moments where you could just see it right there for yourself. Not that he was ungrateful for the position he was in. Because a lot of people say, oh, he was a fucking crybaby. It's just that he was uncomfortable with the position he was thrust into. Not that he was necessarily ungrateful, but he was uncomfortable with the fact that, you know, kids viewed him in such a heroic light. And you could see it in his face and his eyes as this child approaches him. And I, I read somewhere that the kid was suffering from a terminal illness and passed away. I don't know if that's true, but it would make the moment all the more surreal and heartbreaking and heartwarming at the same time. So Cobain signs them an autograph, and then they give him uh, drumsticks from the set because the kid collected drumsticks. And Cobain says to him after he gives the autograph, he just looks at him, he's got a cigarette in his mouth, and he says, don't smoke, because <laughs> he didn't know what else to say. He's just, this kid tells him he's his hero. He just had no idea how to handle it. That's just... And then he walks off into the night. And that was that for the performance at Reading. One of the world's biggest bands at the time plays on one of the world's biggest stages. It would be Nirvana's final UK concert, unfortunately, because they came back after that tour. And then they recorded a new role. They released that. They went on one final tour. They did their Unplugged in 93. And then, of course, we all know the story of what happened in early 1994. Tragically, Kurt Cobain passes away. But... That moment, August 30th, 1992, captured in time. You can listen to the record, you can buy the DVD, which released in 2009 after years of bootlegging, and you can just watch The Magic, one of the best musicians of the last quarter century. I don't give a damn what anybody says. A lot of people hate on Nirvana and hate on Cobain, that they weren't truly rock and roll, and they were just a cheap band. And that. No, fuck that. Nirvana was an excellent band, and they inspired so many bands after them. They inspired rock music. 
they just changed the face in the course of rock music. They were one of the driving forces behind it when they burst onto the worldwide scene in 1991. And on August 30th, 1992, they delivered one of the best concerts ever at the Reading Festival as the headliners. So that's that. That's my return for Let Me Be Frank. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Hope you learned a couple of things about Nirvana. Hope you think about them in a different way. Some of the songs we talked about. Hopefully you go watch the concert that I'm talking about live at Reading 1992 or throw on the record because it's incredible. I will see you all. Well, I'm not going to see you all, but I'll get back to you all as soon as I can. I'll get back to all of you with new episodes. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the Let Me Be Frank podcast on iTunes, on Google Play Music. You could follow the episodes on YouTube. By the way, I'm going to have my old episodes on YouTube archived there for you to follow because I'm going to post new episodes on my RSS feed through SoundCloud for iTunes and Google Play Music. But I'm going to erase the old episodes because I'm not about to start paying for a membership for something I do recreationally. And, you know, so I'm just going to work my way around that. So new episodes will continue to be put up on iTunes and Google Play Music. And then old episodes of Let Me Be Frank will be on YouTube. And, of course, I've always got my own website, too, where you can track all of that, www.frankmentalacino.com. That's my actor website. So thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you.